Well, this morning, if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 32, is where we're going to start. But I want to highlight something that I I think travels into every one of our lives in some ways. I think if you come to know Jesus and your life gets changed by him, and then you get amongst God's people and you become aware that, that there is this purpose of God that's taking place. God's doing stuff around us. And something in every one of our hearts, I think, wants to play a role in that. Right? I mean, I think every one of us would say, I, I, I want to participate in that. I, I want to feel like my life is, is serving God and serving his purpose in some way. But what can I do? And then you, you get in gatherings like this, or maybe you attend one of our small groups, and I hope everybody's attending our small groups. Or, and you come into settings where you observe other people serving, and it's just really easy to get in that setting to feel like, you know, the way that guy's serving, you know, that's not me, I don't think I could do that. Or, yeah, that's not me. You know, maybe you had Dean Adamek stand up here a few weeks ago, and a guy who sat in the pew here and went to Mexico and got involved in foreign missions, and uh, you know, I, I just don't know if that's me. It's really easy to create a list of things that sounds like, I, I don't know if that's me. And, and that may be true in a number of those. But what we're going to talk about today is a ministry for everybody. It's a ministry for anybody, and it's a ministry for those who feel like they're nobodies. It's the ministry of intercession. It's the ministry of praying. It's the ministry of standing before God with a God-ordained role. That somehow, and you read this, we're going to study Moses today, but the, the, the Bible is filled with characters who are answering God's plan and purpose. That somebody stand right here and request me to do something on your behalf. There's something about how God created his universe and people to live in it that he's looking for that. Matter of fact, it seems as though he's waiting for that. And there are moments in scripture where God looks out into the massive needs of humanity. And and he says this almost in in a, a tone of bewilderment. I looked for someone who would stand in the gap before me. And I found none. So the God of the universe is looking for intercessors. And that's not just the guys who hold microphones. Let me just tell you, you and I are going to live in streets of gold one day in mansions in heaven in incredible places and we're going to be blown away by the people who live in the biggest houses who've received the most abundant of rewards they may have been some of the most unpublic people you ever got around but they were doing things in the economy of God in categories like intercessory prayer that move the kingdom of God in ways that we're just going to be going wow wow, wow, throughout eternity. But let us learn something today of the impact and the calling of intercessory prayer. I titled this Famous Turning Points. You probably are not aware, but I think today and about two or three weeks from now marks the 240-year anniversary of a rather significant world-changing event that most of us have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But if this event had not taken shape the way that it did, if it had not unfolded and the actions of the individuals hadn't been what they were, it's very possible 
our future as a nation would have been completely different. The world would be very different just given the fact that America has been such a unique influence in the global uh, economy and governments. There's a fellow in the 1800s who wrote a book, Edward Creasy wrote a book entitling this particular event, One of the 15 Decisive Battles of the World. And he was referring to the Battle of Saratoga in Saratoga, New York. The Revolutionary War gets its start in April of 1775. We declare independence in 1776. And then in September, October of 1777, the the British have a strategic opportunity that perhaps is never going to come again for them. They have an opportunity to cut off the northern colonies from the southern colonies and perhaps bring this war to a quick end. And they have assigned to this task a a world-famous general, General Burgoyne, And he has quite a superior force that is amassing in Canada that he is going to bring down the Hudson River in an attack to cut off from the Hudson River from the south in New York all the way to Canada to cut off the northern colonies from the southern colonies. And he has superior forces from Germany uh, that are with him. He has forces from uh, Native Americans that are with him and he has British forces that are with him and he has the advantage and he is one smart cookie in this report from Edward Creasy he says without question the plan was ably formed and had the success of the execution been equal to the ingenuity of the design the reconquest or submission of the 13 US colonies must in all human probability have followed And the independence, which they proclaimed in 1776, would have been extinguished before it existed a second year. The war which rent away the North American colonies of England is, of all subjects in history, the most painful for an Englishman to dwell on. Is that true, Peter? Do you feel that way? No. (laughs) I I knew I could get you to respond inappropriately. But... The contemplation of it cannot be evaded by the historian, however much it may be aboard. Nor can any military event be said to have exercised more important influence on the future of fortunes of mankind than the complete defeat of Burgoyne's expedition in 1777. A defeat which rescued the revolted colonists from certain subjection and which by inducing the courts of France and Spain to attack England in their behalf, ensured the independence of the United States and the formation of that transatlantic power which not only America, but both Europe and Asia now see and feel. Right? When this battle at Saratoga is won by the U.S. colonies, France and Spain begin to believe these guys can win. This could happen. And they join forces with the U.S. colonies. And the future, as we know it, begins to be shaped into an American nation, which you and I are now part of and which has influenced the world. This was a decisive moment. October of 1777 was a decisive moment. What could have been one historic pathway that this country would have entered on and all of our lives would have been affected by suddenly became a different pathway that we would walk and experience. 
When you and I read in Exodus chapter 32, and we've been hanging out at the foot of Mount Sinai for quite some time, there's a lot to learn in this event. That's why God spends so much time. So much of the Bible is dedicated to Mount Sinai. So there's a lot to learn here, but one of the things that we don't want to race past is what I'm going to call the, the battle of Mount Sinai. That there is a moment here, a decisive moment, where a course of direction is before the people of God. And in a decisive moment, suddenly, there's going to be a different course that becomes their story. They had one story that would have been their story, but because of a decisive battle fought at Mount Sinai, a different course awaits them. And it's a little mind-blowing here. And it should touch our concept of what intercessory prayer looks like because the battle was fought in the heavenlies in a man's prayer closet. That's where this battle took place. Moses is going to model for us what it means to access God's throne of grace. And in one moment, the the future history of a people is about to go down this path. And when he's done praying, it's about to go down this path. That's a pretty powerful event. Wayne Grudem says this about our prayer lives. He says, if we were really convinced that prayer changes the way God acts and that God does bring about remarkable changes in the world in response to prayer, as scripture repeatedly teaches that he does, then we would pray much more than we do. If we pray little, it is probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. True or not true? Your answer kind of doesn't matter, does it? Because it is my life that gives away my answer. Doesn't matter whether I think, oh, no, Keith, I, man, I know prayer changes things. But I'm not a person who prays. And you don't really believe that. <laughs> when you and I spring into action, we jump into the midst of the fires of life. We get involved in skirmishes and problems and circumstances. And even if we don't jump into them, we back off with fear and doubts. And we get consumed with thinking through what could be, what might be. We do all that stuff instead of praying. And it gives away that we don't really believe that prayer avails much. That prayer actually changes the course of events. It has that kind of power. But that's what we're going to see here as we study this battle at Mount Sinai that wages through Moses standing before God. So I just want us to look at a couple things. I want us to look at the setting of the battle of Mount Sinai. And I want us to look at the weapons and the warfare of this battle. And I hope that we will leave here equipped and inspired to be intercessors. If, I, if there's anything I've been praying for this service, and, and we prayed in our prayer gathering this morning before the service, prayed last night for us. Lord, would you, would you give us an increase in intercessors, 30, 60, 100 fold? Would you awaken in us an awareness of, of the need and of the power of intercessory prayer in our midst, that we might wrestle with it and we might make that our first step as you and I go to do life? 
All right, so look with me in Exodus 32 and verse 7. This is the setting, and, and it is not an attractive setting. That's why I'm making a big deal out of it. The setting of intercession is not something you're going to want to pursue. It is, however, where Moses finds himself, and as we're going to see, it's where we find ourselves. Exodus 32, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And Moses' response here, but Moses implored the Lord. Let's pray for a moment. Father, these again are your words preserved for us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So Lord, to live life in this age and in this time, we need these words. Lord, we we need to be PhDs in these events at Mount Sinai for they inform what we will do in our lives. And So Lord, give us ears to hear Hearts that are eager to receive, Lord. Plant your word deep in our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is, this is the setting of intercessory prayer. Right? Where's, my, where's my chalkboard? Right, if we were going to chalkboard this thing out, uh, corruption, this is the description of the setting that's going to inspire Moses to pray. It is going to be a setting of corruption, a setting where people are turning aside and where they are motivated and controlled and influenced by idolatry, which is in their hearts. Now, these things probably aren't things that are very attractive, and that's kind of what makes us, I think, get distracted in many ways. But what's amazing is Moses, and I want to say it this way, God had so revealed himself to Moses. Moses is not great in and of himself, right? It's wrong for us to stare at Moses and go, what a guy. Moses is being shaped and formed by his interaction with God. And so he gets in this setting, a setting that is full of corruption, a setting that is full of turning aside, and a setting that's full of idolatry. And by the way, that's every setting you and I are a part of. Those settings still exist today. This is not a light, you know, this is not a lesson this morning for us. Hey, just in case one day you ever encounter these things, look around. (laughs) This room is full of corruption, this room is full of turning aside. This room is full of hearts that are easily prone to idolatry, to look away from God and look to something else. And and you're all staring at me right now, so okay, you can start with me. Go ahead, look at me. 
I have my own issues of corruption and turning aside and idolatry that functions in me. So if you got nothing else to pray for, you'd be praying for me. You can be interceding for me. Because what's going on at the foot of the mountain down there is corruption and turning aside and idolatry. And it's what's going on in the church. It's what's going on in your family. It's going on with friends that are in your life. It's what's going on at work when you're around people. It was interesting when I was in college, in engineering school, they, they had a class. It was really an interesting class. It was, it was called a materials class, materials of engineering. And the reason for the class was to teach you as an engineer, if you're going to build things and construct things, you, you had to have an awareness that whatever material you were going to make that thing out of, it was going to be placed in an environment. And you had to understand the relationship between that environment and this material that you were proposing to use. And if you didn't understand that, boy, would you be shocked at what was going to happen. Right, so most of us get this. Living in South Louisiana, uh, most of us are familiar with the oil and gas industry. And you have these big structures that get built offshore. Well, they, you know, they build them in salt water. They build them in salt water that floods the air with salty content. And how many of you guys know that if you put the wrong metal in salt water, you've got some real problems on your hand? You might leave in a boat and come back next week and you're like, I know I parked that big oil rig here. <laughs> and it's just not there anymore. Because the environment corrupted it. And the whole class was to teach you about corrosion and rot, and decay, and that the nature of some materials are vulnerable to certain interactions. They're not vulnerable to everything, and that's what you had to learn. You had to learn that certain types of materials are vulnerable to certain things around them. And boy, that, that's, that's our story, isn't it? Right? This, this was a room full of metals. Everybody's kind of got their own little profile, maybe. And, you know, you pick your life up and you, you stick it in this environment and it interacts with that environment a certain way. And you stick it in this environment and it interacts with this environment a certain way. You stick it in this environment. So these guys got to Mount Sinai and they got stuck in an environment where there was delay. Moses took too long. And then there was questions and fear about the future. And that was the environment that they needed. And when that environment took place, into them came this corruption And this turning away from God and looking to idols. Listen, in some way, this is is everybody we know, isn't it? This sort of issue invades families and households, marriages. How many guys know marriages where this is the script? Something came in and corrupted what was once a healthy, loving relationship. But something happened. Tragedy, longevity of struggle, economic distress, unfaithfulness. Something happened. And that relationship began to erode. It began to get attacked by its environment. And and it began to become corrupted. And next thing you know, if you stared at that relationship long enough, somebody turned aside. They were once going this way, but now they are headed in a different direction. 
And idolatry begins to function in that arena. This happens to young people as they transition from being young members of households to being adults. And they go through teen years and young adult years. And there, there comes into that environment. It's a different environment. It's a different set of surroundings. It's a different future. Life feels different for you in that moment. It's not just when you were a little kid and you're just doing little kid land amongst your family. And that environment begins to interact with you. And it, and it corrupts things inside of you. And next thing you know, you're turning aside. And building idols into life. Right? This is the story of the people all around us. Which means, listen, this is what this means. It means you and I could get a full-time job doing some serious intercession on a regular basis, couldn't we? Because these ingredients are just part of the landscape of life. They're not unique. It's not like, hey, once we move on from this story at Mount Sinai, we're going to be done with this issue. We're not going to see any more corruption. There won't be any more turning aside. and There won't be any more idolatry. Remember what I said a few weeks ago. Idolatry continues to be an issue. The last New Testament writer, the Apostle John, his parting words before a revelation, his parting words in his epistles are, little children... Guard yourselves from idols. Still a problem. I thought that was just a Sinai thing. No, still a problem. So around us are many opportunities for us to intercede. But I don't always want to intercede for these people. Because they're also in this equation called stiff-necked. Did I put this warning in your outline there? Warning. It can become tempting for us in the face of corruption to not respond with intercession, but rather to respond with irritation, frustration, even self-righteousness. Or, at least, control or manipulation or human pressure, rather than intercession. I think the first great difficulty is... Whatever this corruption and turning aside and idolatry has has brought into your life, because it usually touches your life in some way, it it stirs up irritation toward it. And so you have to manage your, am I going to be irritated by this? Am I just going to be frustrated by this? Right? That's the first thing. I'm not even going to think about interceding because I'm just, I'm just hot. I just want to blow off some steam. I just want to be angry about this situation. I want to tell other people too, by the way. I want to have a meeting here. This is not just to ask you to pray, but I'm going to ask you to pray under the cover of, I just want to complain out loud about, I can't believe this person's done this to me again. That's what a prayer meeting is. I don't know if you knew that's the definition for a prayer meeting. That's what I actually call gossip, in case you're wondering what that's really called. <laughs> but it can be a little difficult. You know, where it can be really difficult is, is when you're having to walk with repeat offenders who were, were, were back here again. This has happened again. In spite of all the wreckage and the ruin that's historically traveled with this issue, this person has traveled down this road again. I want to be very careful on how I said that. I said that that way on purpose because that is how we feel. But when you start feeling that way, you're also flirting with self-righteousness. 
And it's very hard to shift from self-righteousness to intercession. I want to see one of the greatest intercessors in all the Bible is, is go visit Daniel and read the book of Daniel and find a man who is incredibly faithful to God. I think it's Daniel chapter 9 and into chapter 10. And when Daniel turns to pray and intercede for the waywardness, for the corruption and the waywardness of the people amongst whom he is, he sticks himself right amongst them all. He identifies with every one of them. We have, Lord, we have. What are you talking about, Daniel? You got, you got a resume that all the rest of us wish we had. But he doesn't see himself as distinct. And this is pretty important, right? That you and I don't see ourselves as somehow superior to those that we're interceding for. Like, like they really have got some issues. Like, like, like I don't. I have, look, I got my own chapters of corruption and my own ways that I turn away. And my own issues of idolatry. And when I go to pray, it's, it's good to be reminded of that. Charles Spurgeon says, We find Moses saying to God, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. It has happened to you, I suppose, as it has to me, that in the sight of a great sin, one has almost hesitated to pray about it. The person sins so wantonly, under circumstances so peculiarly grievous, Transgressed so willfully and so altogether without excuse that you felt thrust back from the mercy seat and from pleading for such a sinner. But it was not so with Moses. Idolatry is a horrible sin. Yet Moses is not kept back from pleading for its forgiveness. It astounds him. His own wrath. Wax is hot against it, but still there he is pleading for the transgressors. What else can he do but pray? And he does that after the best possible fashion. Oh, let us never say when we see great sin, I'm appalled by it. I cannot pray about it. I'm sickened by it. I loathe it. I must confess that I sometimes felt as if I could not pray for some of the wretches who sinned so foully but we must shake off that kind of feeling and even in the presence of the most atrocious iniquity we must still say i will pray even for these you know it's really helpful to arrive at that point is to is to remember this the most atrocious of sins whatever it is you could say i got to pray for that person the most atrocious of sins the the distance from their sin to your sin is infinitesimal while the distance from their unrighteousness and your unrighteousness to God is infinite. So you and I are a lot closer in our sin to the most atrocious sin you can think of right now than you and I are close to the righteousness of God. So it's kind of like, you know, if we're a gazillion miles away from God, that most atrocious guy... He's a gazillion miles and one inch away from God. And you and I live right next door to him. And the God who exercises forgiveness and compassion and mercy and patience, he's exercising that toward you and me. Just like he's exercising it toward the atrocious, obnoxious person that you're trying to figure out, do I even want to pray for this wretch again? Just remember, the Son of God is your intercessor. 
And aren't you glad he doesn't feel that way? When I'm back again with this same dumb issue in my life, and he continues to cry out on my behalf. Well, that's the, the setting of this battle at Mount Sinai. The setting of corruption and turning aside and idolatry. Now, now here is the battle, right? Look in chapter 32 there, verse 11. Here, here, let's analyze the weapons of this warfare that is engaged up on this mountain for the souls of these people. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent. From this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give it to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented. From the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is a decisive moment, isn't it? Because in verse 10, who knows what's in the future, right? Who knows what tomorrow could bring, right? But when the God of the universe says, get out of the way, here's what tomorrow's going to look like. From a human standpoint, I'm not even arguing this, and we haven't even spent any time with what does Mount Sinai look like in the sovereignty of God from a divine standpoint. You'll have to tune into another chapter, otherwise I'll be in Exodus forever. Um, But this is a view of God from earth. This is humanity staring into the dealings of heaven. So what it sounds like to Moses, and what we said a couple of weeks ago, Moses takes serious, is tomorrow is guaranteed this. Toast. That's what's tomorrow. Everybody's about to get wiped out. Now, who knows what tomorrow will bring? Well, God just said what tomorrow's going to bring. I'm going to start over, and you're going to be the only one left, Moses. That's what he just heard. And Moses responds by interceding. And at the conclusion of his intercession, this is a decisive moment. The Lord relents. So whatever tomorrow was about to be, it's now going to be this. Instead of that, it's going to be this. What made it go this way? Those three verses of conversation between a man and the living God changed the course of what tomorrow was about to look like. You've heard me use these quotes before. I can't improve on them. They're just great insights. S.D. Gordon says, You can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. We think we can do more where we are through our service than prayer to give power to our service. No. With the blackest underscoring and emphasis, let it be said, no. We can do nothing of real power until we have done the prayer thing. 
Well, it's a lot. Of, it's, that's, you know, does that feel like good news or, or a burden to you? Because I'll read that. Can I just, because I know it can feel like, oh, great, one more thing for me to do. All right, well, now in addition to whatever panic and freak out and conversations I'm going to have about this situation, now I've got to pray about it too. Um, th- does it sound at all like good news that, that maybe if we spent our effort and energy in a different category, we wouldn't even have to spend it in some of these others or it might shorten the length of time that we spend it in others? Right, that's what this exposes us to, that if we would do business with God in heaven... Knows what impact it has upon what you and I are walking out here on the earth. John Jowett, another classic preacher, says, Well, now it is in the field of prayer that life's critical battles are lost or won. In prayer, we bring our spiritual enemies into the presence of God and we fight them there. Have you tried that? Or have you been satisfied to meet and fight your foes in the open spaces of the world? It is a very interesting thing. God tells Moses, Moses, get down from here and and, and step back. I'm going to deal with these people. You know, Moses is not some over-controlling parent here in this moment. Because an over-controlling parent would have left and ran down the stairs and found out what exactly has been going on down here. And she just scolded, and she just protected, and this is never going to happen again. Well, well, okay, and now that we've done all that, now let's make that case to God, right? Ah, that's not going to happen anymore, God. I fixed that, I corrected that. See, there's something about our influence on people that first enamors us. You tell me that the people that came up with, they're all out of control and have turned the wrong way? Well, let me run down there. Let me see, you know, I'm not a mom, I'm a dad. I run in my own way. I'm a pastor. I'm going to wear you out with words. Give me a minute, God. I'm going down to the mountain here, and, and we're going to have some words. And I'm, you know, I'm going to fix this situation with my words. I mean, isn't that how we approach the brokenness of life? Our first step is what's in my toolbox that I can bring to bear on these people in that situation. How can I get involved with that? What, how can I push on it, pressure it, manipulate it? to it. Drown it in words, whoever you are, whatever you do. That's not Moses' first response. Moses knew something that was really, really critical, that if he could win the war at the top of the mountain, the war at the bottom of the mountain gets worked out. So the first thing he needed to do, he needed to get on God's page. He needed to find God's page for these people. So the first act is to intercede for it. And to call out to God. And that's what he does. That's the battle. The battle at Mount Sinai, it's up in that cloud. In a prayer closet between a man named Moses and the living God. Now let me, let me walk through a couple of insights here. I'm going to try and keep these weapons of the battle of Mount Sinai in just the context of this story for the most part. Because we could really have a lot of points here if we didn't. But remember this passage in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says, For we walk, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
Right now, I'm not going to unpack that. I'm not going to go back into the context for a moment here in 2 Corinthians. But just to plant an awareness. You and I have a physical existence. That physical existence involves all kinds of things. But there's a spiritual dimension to life. And it might make complete sense to us that the first order of priorities is to run down the mountain and deal with the natural aspects of this situation. But Moses knows something that we need to come to know. The weapons of our warfare, they're not natural. They're divinely empowered to accomplish things that the natural realm cannot accomplish. Now listen... He is going to go down the mountain. He is going to correct them. He's going to do a bunch of stuff here. So this is not an argument for, hey, let's all just climb in our prayer closets and never come out. But I think most of us realize that's never going to happen anyway, no matter how good the message is today. But what is happening in our lives is that we have become natural minded. We operate out of the fleshly dimensions of life and so what's most critical in the crisis of our lives where corruption has snuck in and touched people that are in our world what's most critical is what we're going to do next with that what we're going to say how we're going to be involved what discipline we're going to bring and listen i'm not saying you don't do those things but our weapons that are most effective are spiritual in nature and they need a prayer closet Mean you and I to climb in with God and make arrangements in the heavenlies for the things that are about to happen on earth. Now here's some weapons in this battle that I just want to highlight watching Moses respond and what's inside of him. First, how about the weapon of knowing what you are aligned with? Or, or knowing what side of this situation are you on? Whose side are you on? Remember Moses does go down the mountain here, Exodus 32 Verse 25, he says, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Who is on the Lord's side? Come come to me because inherently Moses was on the Lord's side in this. Moses has already argued on the Lord's behalf to God. Moses is a man who is committed to that which brings glory to God. So when you and I go to intercede, when you and I go to do life, when we interact, or, or interact with people and settings that are, that are corrupted, that people have turned aside and idolatry is involved, whose side are you on in that moment? And how do you figure out what side you're on? Does it have to do with whether they're related to you or not? Whether they're doing something that you would agree with or shun? I mean, how do you figure out how to pray about these things? Whose side are you on? Well, an intercessor needs to be on the Lord's side. He needs to be able to stand in the midst of corruption and identify what does God want in this moment? What is in God's interest in this moment? And it can lead you into some very difficult conversations with people. But it, it needs to have led you into some difficult conversations with God beforehand. Before I talk to you about your situation, I might need to get a revelation from God. I might need to get around him and get his heart and be on his side 
And that's what Moses did before he goes down and summons the people to himself and says, hey, I'm on God's side. Who wants to be on God's side in this? He had already been with God and he knew what side to be on and how to be led in this. But the weapon of kingdom priorities. In this world, in our lives, what, what is of ultimate concern and importance? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that occupies our lives. A lot of pressures and situations. What is of ultimate importance? If you want to see the, the ultimate, I believe, head and shoulders above any other ultimate moment of intercession, it, it is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Son of God has come to this historic moment. And in God's plan, all of the guilt, sin, and punishment of those who are about to be redeemed is being collected into a cup to be poured out on the Son of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, this this weight begins to be experienced by Jesus. And he responds, Father, if... It is possible. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Right? Ultimately, an intercessor is interested in God. What do you want in this hour and in this need? Look at what happens in Exodus chapter 33. Right? We've gotten past 32. They're no longer going to be wasted. They're going to continue. But the intercession is going to continue. In Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. The Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Don't, don't read past this verse too quickly. Did you notice what they get offered here? This is not a bad deal. You get to keep going. The land... That's been set before your ancestors for years and years and years. It's yours. You get to have it. The abundance of the land. The reward of the land. The good of the land. The blessing of the land. The milk and the honey. You get to have that too. Power and victory over the inhabitants of the land. The enemies that stand in the way. Those, all those things in your life that are between you and what God has promised. God says I'm going to overthrow those. And I'm going to send a supernatural angel to accompany you along the way. It's just this one thing that's missing. They get everything else. There's just this one thing missing. It's the manifest presence of God among them. 
And Moses, being the intercessor that he is, throws a flag on the play and says, whoa, 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 time out. No deal. God, if you're going to give us all that stuff, but we're not going to have you manifest among us. No. I don't want that. We don't want that. This is... This, this is kind of a sad indictment on the church in the Western world. Because the church in the Western world has settled for so much. Of, this deal sounds great to most churches, honestly. Most of us as Americans, we are, we are taught more about the values of success and comfort and acquiring things and material possessions. And and so if we can just have a decent career that allows for us to have some extra blessings and live in a a nice house and our kids can all be educated so that they can have what all that education provides for them, you know, all the security and the future and the hope that education can provide for them. Is that sarcastic enough for you? But we're Americans, right? We value that. If God will just give us that. Oh, if God just allows my child to go to the right school. I just think God is moved in heaven. But that's how we evaluate whether God's on our side. Whether he's blessing us. Whether we're getting the things that really, really matter. If we get to live a bit of life the way we want to live it. And have some of the things that we want to have. And go to the places that we want to have. Along the way, the Western church doesn't notice that the manifest presence of God amongst you is long ago departed. But you got so many of these other things. We'll take that deal. We'll take, we'll take, we take it all the time. But an intercessor who's been in the presence of God, which is who Moses is, he's been exposed to something that makes him say, no, I'm, I'm not okay with that. Exodus 33 verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom will you will sin with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you. Do, you. do you get Mount Sinai, the battlefield of Mount Sinai? That's a decisive moment. You understand, we started this with tomorrow is going to look like this. You're headed into a land, you know, milkshakes and everything, but my presence will not be traveling with you. And by the time this man's done interceding, there's a new tomorrow in front of them. I will go with you. Can you argue with the fact that an intercessor stood before God and altered the course of history in this moment? From a human standpoint. Now listen, I don't know how this works out in heaven. And and you know what? If you're sticking your head up in the clouds of heaven makes you stop praying, well then pull your head back out of the clouds and stop playing God. Because when you look at this and you go, well, you know, probably God always intended to do it that way anyway. He was just, you know, faking Moses out for a second. All right. 
If you want to, if that needs to be your interpretation, I'm not sure what good that is to you. I think what this felt like for Moses is tomorrow looks like this. And God will not be among us. God, Moses doesn't reply by saying, oh God, you don't mean that. I know you're sovereign and you've got all these sovereign things going on in the universe. that You can't do that, can you? Because you're sovereign. I know better than that. I'm chilling. The dude implores God. He cries out like, this is really about to happen. God, no. No, God. Don't let it go that way. And then God reveals, I will go among you. I wish I could say that this is the last time Moses will have to pray this way. But if we stare into Moses' life a little bit longer, there is this weapon of persistence. And if you're going to be an intercessor, this doesn't mean that, hey, this week, you know, after this message, I'm going to be serious about intercession. I'm going to take those people that are in my life and I'm going to climb into my prayer closet and I'm going to pray for them at least once this week. Uh, all right, that's, that's, that's a start. That's a start. Let's at least start there. Right, but when you stare into Moses' life, you find out that you, you, you get less than a year out and, and Moses is back standing before God on behalf of these people. Numbers 14, which would be about a year out from Mount Sinai here. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Can you imagine how hard it is to be Moses interceding genuinely with a heart of affection for these people? Remember this moment, they have just pulled up into the parking lot of um, the promised land theme park. And they've sent spies in to figure out which rides should we ride first when we get there. And the spies have come back with a bad report. This isn't going to work. We're not going to be able to overcome. There's giants in the land. Right here, here comes the next corrosive environment. A report that the people are too big, the, bit, the uh, cities are too strong, and there's no way you're going to get to experience the joy and the benefit of this land. And that corruption comes back. Right, Whatever they're made of, it's corruptible. And they get corrupted again and they grumble. The whole congregation said to them, What that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that, that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become prey? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And in just a moment, we're going to look at Moses' last intercessory element in this chapter of them venturing into the land here. And Moses is going to do something. I just want to put it under this heading. Moses is going to expose us to the, the weapon of skillful argument. Because sometimes when we go to pray, we have no idea how to pray. And, and, and that needs to get helped. That needs, we need to do some homework in that category. But what Moses does, we've already seen him do this. We're going to watch him do it again. Moses argues with God. Moses stands before God like he's a judge. And Moses is an attorney who's brought a legal case into this setting. And he makes an argument as to why the court should rule in his favor. That's what he does. Tim Keller says, when we petition God, we should lay before God as part of our prayer the reasons why 
we think that we ask for, what we, what we ask for is the best thing. J.I. Packer mentions that many older Christian writers talk about arguing with God in prayer. By arguing, they meant, quote, telling God why what we have asked for seems to us to be for the best in light of what we know God's own goals to be. This means embedding theological reasoning in all our prayers. Like Wherever you are, start praying. But stare at these weapons a little bit so that you can realize, as I go to make my case, whose side am I on? What am I arguing for? And what ultimately am I after? You, you need to ask those questions. And if, if your answers come back like, well, I'm, I'm just after life being easier day after tomorrow. That's what I'm after. All right, you might need to step back and learn a little bit more. Because there are bigger things going on in the universe than whether or not the next few weeks of your life are going to be easier for you. But that is an inclination, right? I mean, we can form our prayers and our strategies before God's throne out of what benefits me the most, the quickest. But there's something here that we learn from Moses. Numbers chapter 14. says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them and you go before them in pillar of cloud by day and in pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. Now, please, let the power of the Lord be great As you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generation. Where did Moses get that from? This is the basis of his argument, isn't it? God, here's why I'm asking you to not do what what their life calls upon you and demands that you do. Here's, here's why I'm saying that. Because when I said, show me your glory, and you hid me in the cleft of the rock, and you revealed yourself to me, you said that you were a God who was slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and compassionate. Yet you do visit the sins into the future of your people. But... You forgive. And he makes an argument out of God's character. It's, his intercession is based on what he knows about God. And I don't, I don't think it would have been wrong for him in that moment to say, God, there would be so much hurt for the people and they would be so disappointed. And, and th- this would be a travesty and there would be suffering amongst people that we know you love. 
I don't say that that would be wrong for him to pray that way. I just want you to notice that's not the basis of his prayer right here. The argument he makes before God is based on who God is. Which means if I'm going to pray, I probably need to know something about who God is, right? Verse 19, he says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Again, God, this is what I've known you to do. I know what you're like, God. All this way, you have forgiven us and forgiven us and forgiven us. And based on the fact that you've done it before and that's what you're like, I ask you to do it again. This teaches you how to pray. Does this help you get in your prayer closet? It helps me. Does this help you stare into the people in your life who have become corrupted, turned aside, and idolatrous? To stand before God as an intercessor and make an argument on their behalf. Helps me. I hope it helps you. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. That is a sentence and a half, isn't it? God, what are you going to do? Well, I was about to start over again. And now I'm going to pardon. Why are you doing that, God? Because of Moses' word. Wow, that's sobering. That man stood in the presence of God and made his argument. And the future changed. That's a decisive moment in history, isn't it? And the Bible's full of them. And it's the role of intercessors. See, when you and I are praying the Lord's Prayer, we're praying, thy kingdom come. And this is what you're doing. You're you're saying, thy will be done. Not that kingdom, not this moment, not that sin, not the prince of darkness. Not that, God, but this. And somehow, in the grand scheme of God, you and I are called to be intercessors, to pray this way, to learn to pray this way, which is what I hope we will do moving forward. Eric, you can come back up here.